All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on 1 Corinthians. In this session, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. And in this section, Paul really begins to dig deep into the topic of the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God and the cross and what all that means for the Corinthians in their divisions and the way they're acting within their church. Recall that chapter 1, verse 17 refers to the message of the cross and that Paul didn't want to empty that message of its power by the use of rhetorical flourish of public oratory that was so popular in places like Corinth. And he refers to that kind of public oratory as wisdom of speech or translated their cleverness of speech. So now he's like, okay, let's talk about wisdom and the cross and God. And specifically, he's answering the question is, how does the preaching of the gospel in a way that draws attention to the speaker in an eye-catching way with rhetorical flourish, how does that have the the, uh, possibility of emptying the cross of its power? And so in this section, 1, 18 through 2, 5, Paul focuses on the wisdom of the world and how such wisdom views the cross and how, therefore, to dress it up, the message of the cross, in clever, impressive ways actually robs the cross of its power. Then in chapter 2, verse 6 and following, he begins to paint a positive picture of wisdom and the wisdom of the cross through the Spirit. But for now, He wants to help us understand really how if he had come and tried to preach Christ and the cross using rhetorical flourish, how that would have the the potential to empty the cross of its power. And so he begins here in chapter 2, verse 18, by saying, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so He had just said in verse 17 that Christ uh, sent me to preach the gospel not in wisdom of speech, not in cleverness of speech or wisdom of speech, so the cross would be uh, not nullified of its power or brought to no effect. And so now he's explaining that for the word of the cross, the message about the cross, namely that by dying in the the worst imaginable way possible and the lowest, most shameful way possible, that somehow by doing that, God had brought salvation and renewal to the entire world. And what Paul points out here in verse 18 is that there are two broad responses to the message of the cross. It's foolishness to one group, or it's the power of God to another group. For those who are perishing, it's foolishness. Since the cross is a solution to sin and death, and thus means life, to reject it and its message is to remain in the realm of death. On the other hand, to receive the cross and see it for what it is leads to salvation by means of the very power of God. So those are the two big responses. Paul then goes on in verse 19 to quote an Old Testament passage that shows that subverting the values and the wisdom of the world is God's way and was God's plan all along. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.19 where Paul writes, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the understanding of those who have understanding I will confound. And it's important to notice here that it's not just that humans can't grasp 
uh, God's wisdom by their own wisdom. It's more than that. It's that human wisdom is under God's judgment. Look what he says, that he's going to destroy it and he's going to confound it. And this quote comes from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. In context, this is an oracle of woe against Judah and Jerusalem because of her unfaithfulness to God and the covenant. And so God says she's going to be turned to dust, but then God's also going to punish her enemies and they will be destroyed and turned to fine dust. And in that context, God describes them as people who worship him with their lips. That is, with fine, wise-sounding words and all sorts of uh, religious songs, but their hearts are far from him. So God promises to do something amazing, and when he does that, it will pass judgment on their wisdom. So Paul, now seeing the ultimate fulfillment of that, recognizes that the amazing thing that God has done is send his son to die on the cross. That's the ultimate fulfillment of these words in Isaiah 29. And it's by doing that that God has destroyed the wisdom of the wise. That's the point here of quoting this in verse 19. And so the wisdom of this world and of fallen human beings is condemned and it's destined to be done away with. And that happened in and through the cross of Jesus. And so in verse 20, Paul then asks a handful of rhetorical questions again to emphasize this point. Notice what he says. Where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? These are all uh, descriptions, titles for people who are supposed to be knowledgeable, who are supposed to be smart, who are skilled and impressive. They're wise. They're the scribe. They're the ones that can, they know things. They write things down. They can teach people things. They, they have legal ability. The debater of this age, the one that's got skilled in rhetoric, and they can, they can debate and they can wrestle with things. And the point of asking these questions is to emphasize that there's, they're nowhere to be found. Like God is doing away with them in and through the person of Jesus, in his kingdom, these things don't matter. Why not? Why aren't they anywhere to be found? Well, because God has removed them. Look at the rest of verse 20. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? And the word world here means the world system. Uh, the world system that, according to 1 John chapter 2, is driven by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. That the things that the world values and thinks so important, well, guess what? It's proven foolish before the wisdom of God. And so he goes on and says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What's the foolishness of the message preached? Well, that's the message of the cross. Uh, that the message of the cross looks like foolishness to the way, to the wisdom of the world. And God was pleased. He was glad to use that message that was viewed as foolishness to be the means by which he saved people who came to faith in Jesus. And then he goes on and explains this even further in verse 22 and following. He says, For indeed, Jews asked for signs. 
Greeks, they search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. There's the, the message that's preached. That's the message that is viewed as foolishness. So Jews are asking for signs. Greeks are searching for wisdom. But a crucified Messiah? No, that's not the way it works, is it? Like, Messiahs, by very definition, aren't they supposed to be strong? Don't they defeat their enemies? Don't they send their enemies packing and they destroy their, their foes? Crucified? That's just dumb. That's just stupid. At least that's the assessment of the world. So look what Paul says. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To be crucified from a Jewish perspective indicated that one was cursed by God. In fact, Paul actually tackles that issue in Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 10 there in Galatians 3 where he talks about that, that Jesus became a curse by taking the uh, by going to the cross. So Jews trip and fell and were ensnared to their own demise by the notion of a crucified Messiah. It made no sense to them. In fact, that word stumbling block originally referred to a trap, like an animal trap, specifically the trigger in the trap that you would put the meat on, right? Like you would ensnare somebody. Like to the Jews, this this just made no sense. And they were ensnared to their own uh, doom by the message of the cross. What about the, the Gentiles? Well, look at the rest of verse 23. And to the Gentiles, this message of a crucified Messiah, it's foolishness. To Gentiles, foolishness. Uh, it's just ridiculous. Why? Well, because heroes win. I mean, that's the very definition of a hero. They win. So to lose, and to lose in such a disgraceful, public, shameful, weak sort of way as a cross, uh, there's no way such a Messiah could actually be legitimate. No hero dies like that. It's completely foolish. But when you hear the message of the cross, and you believe the message of the cross, and then you respond to it, you know that indeed the cross is so much more than just uh, a stumbling block or foolishness. Look at verse 24. But to those who are the called, both to Jews and to Greeks, regardless of the background, Jews and Gentiles, to those who are called to hear the call of the gospel and respond to it with faith, to those ones, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so the message of the cross that is so much foolishness to the world, for those who believe, they recognize it as the very power of God and the very wisdom of God. For, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than mankind, and the weakness of God is stronger than mankind. All right, you want to call God foolish? Let's find God's foolishness. And guess what? It's actually smarter than the smartest human beings can ever come up with on their own. And God's weakness, well, if you find God's weakness, guess what? It's stronger than anything mankind has ever come up with. That's the idea. Like God's foolishness, specifically here talking about the cross and the message of the cross, it may have been viewed by them as foolishness, but it's actually far wiser than what mankind could have ever dreamed up. Oh, it may look so weak and shameful, but guess what? It's actually more powerful and stronger than whatever man could dreamed up. And it's not merely the message of the cross that seems foolish and subverts the world's knowledge and power structures. It's also the effect of the cross. And that's kind of where he goes and what follows. Look at verse 26. For, think this through, consider your calling. Think it through. Think through back to when you were called, when you heard the gospel and you responded in faith. 
Think back to that moment. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Their calling is that moment when you heard the gospel and became believers. That's what he means by your calling. So think back to that moment and think about your social status when you responded to the gospel. By the world's values and the world's standards, he says, not many of you were mighty, not many of you were noble, not many of you would have been considered wise. In other words, you were lowly by the world's standards. You weren't that important. Um, and writing to Corinth and with all their concerns about status and honor in an honor and shame society where the worst thing that could happen was you could be treated as of little reputation, right? Like, as one commentator points out, Paul risks actually offending and insulting the Corinthians here. Uh, he's essentially saying, you guys were a bunch of nobodies when you became believers. But I actually kind of think that's the point. The Corinthians need to be cut down to size a bit. And remember that everything they have and everything they are is because of the cross and the grace of God. So did their lowliness stop God from welcoming them and saving them? Not at all. Look at verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So you guys weren't wise. You guys weren't impressive. You guys weren't of high status and important by the, the standards of the city around you, right? But guess what? God chose the foolish things of the world to shame, to dishonor and humiliate the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the insignificant things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. And so the foolish things, the weak things, the insignificant things, and the despised things. In fact, that word translated insignificant is literally more uh, the idea of lowly. It's the antithesis of noble in verse 26. Not the wise, powerful, or noble, rather the foolish, the weak, and the lowly. That's who God chose. And he emphasizes this group by saying they're the ones that are despised by the world. They're the ones that are like treated as nothing. They're the things that are not. Uh, that means they're nothing. And yet, guess what? God has chosen them. Don't miss that the repetition of that. God has chosen them. Um, the, the foolish things, the lowly things, the weak things, the despised things, so that he may nullify, cancel out, or bring to nothing the world's wisdom and the world's way of doing things. So it's all because of God's wisdom, God's power, and God's graciousness that they're even part of the new family of Jesus. And so now I'll send to turn that into another uh, venue for uh, status-seeking and honor-seeking and jockeying for positions of power and importance by rivalry and all of that. That's just foolish. That's foolish. And so the result of this, the fact that God chose them by his wisdom and power, the result of that, verse 29, is so that no human may boast before God. God has done it this way so that we all come before him recognizing that everything that we have and everything that we are comes from him and we have no place to boast before him. In fact, he amplifies that in verse 30 by saying, but it's due to him that you're in Christ Jesus. Like literally, it's of him. It's of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's of him that you're a Christian. It's not of yourself. It's not of your own skill, your own ability, your own smarts, your own doing. It's of him. And 
It's of him that you're in Christ Jesus. And notice how he describes Jesus in the last half of verse 30. Who became to us. Jesus, who was crucified, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Like Jesus is our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption by his lowliness, by his crucifixion. And the last three words amplify and describe what the wisdom of God entails. He became to us the wisdom of God. That is righteousness. That is sanctification. That is redemption. These are the blessings of salvation that are ours in Christ. We have right standing with God. We've experienced the saving justice. We've been sanctified, set apart as belonging to him and cleansed from our impurities and our sins. We've been redeemed and set free from the power of uh, sin and death. And so we have the blessings of salvation, not, not because of ourselves, but because of him. So that, verse 31, just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this, again, is an Old Testament quote, this time from Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Let me read those verses to you so you can hear how well it fits in with the context of what Paul is discussing here. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, This is what the Lord says. Let no wise man boast of his wisdom, nor let the mighty man boast of his might, nor a rich man boast of his riches. But let the one who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. And so we don't boast in our wisdom. We don't boast in our strength. We don't boast in our own wealth and riches and status. Instead, we boast in the fact that we are known by God and we know the Lord because he's been gracious to us. So all of that is to help the Corinthians and us realize that even though the cross may be evaluated and assessed as ludicrous and foolish by the standards of the world, it is the wisdom and the power of God unto salvation. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, which is really still part of the same unit of thought, Paul returns to where he started. That is, he returns to the subject of preaching the message of the cross. And rather than doing that, in impressive, wise, rhetorical flourish, just to throw out the message of the cross in clear, simple language. And so he says in chapter 2, verse 1, And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I didn't come as someone superior in speaking ability or in wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. Like When I came, I didn't show up um, promoting myself as a great orator, as a great rhetorician. I didn't come to try to you seek applause and be a guest at one of your, you know, your, uh, your banquets and uh, show off my rhetorical prowess. No, I intentionally did not use that approach. That's Paul's point. Instead, I simply came to proclaim to you the testimony of God. Is there a reason Paul came this way? Well, yes, there is. What's that reason? Verse 2, for Here's what I determined. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In view of all that he's just said, this now makes perfect sense. Since the cross is the wisdom of God, since the cross is the power of God, why mute it or why nullify it by communicating it in merely human ways with rhetorical flourish and skill? Instead, Paul determined, notice that, he says, I determined, I resolved, I determined to know only Jesus and the cross. There's a lot more that Paul could have known, but this is what he wanted to focus on. 
he resolved to take no attention away from the Messiah and from his crucifixion. That was the central content of his preaching, the central message of his ministry, Jesus and him crucified. And not only the content of his speaking was counter to the culture of of the day, but so was his approach. So he goes on in verse 3 to kind of describe how he arrived and how that affected his approach. So look what he says. I also was with you in weakness and fear and in great trembling. And so he came to them, he says, in weakness. I, I came intentionally not trying to present myself as a wise public speaker, but I came to you in weakness. What does he mean by weakness? Well, Paul doesn't specify here what he has in mind, but elsewhere in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we can get a pretty good idea. Let me read you a couple passages, one from 1 Corinthians 4 and one from 2 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 10, Paul says this, We are fools on account of Christ, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we're without honor. Up to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When we are verbally abused, we bless. When persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we reply as friends. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even up until now. And again, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. We have this treasure of the gospel there in 2 Corinthians 4 in earthen containers so that the extraordinary greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And so when we talk about weakness, we get a pretty good understanding. It's, it's Paul's suffering his hardship, his lowly approach to ministry, working with his hands, being persecuted, uh, being kind to people who are mean to him rather than retaliating. That's weakness. We came to you in weakness. And what about the great fear and trembling? Well, again, it's not totally clear and he doesn't specify. Um, many have guessed it had to do with the same thing. Paul's struggles, as mentioned in the passages I just read above. And he's coming to one of the largest cities of the empire with a notorious reputation, and he's doing so after a very difficult stretch of ministry when you read it in the book of Acts. I mean, he's been beaten in Philippi, he's been uh, laughed out of Athens, and now he arrives here. Maybe that's what he means by fear and trembling. And it seems like there was a certain level of apprehension and fear because in Acts 18, when Paul's first planting the church, the Lord actually appears to Paul in the vision and says, don't be afraid. Go on preaching, for I have many people in the city. So there was a certain amount of fear involved with Paul's ministry in Corinth. Um, and so that's probably most likely what he has in mind. The other possibility that some suggested is that the phrase captures Paul's sense of carrying out his ministry before God, like in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Maybe this, it's this idea of holy fear and trembling. It's not totally clear. I tend to think it has to do with Paul's struggles and the difficulty of coming to Corinth and the hard stretch of ministry he's been in. But either way, um, it refers to uh, an approach to ministry that's at odds with the cultural norms and the cultural values of Corinth. And so Paul says, that's how I came. That My message was lowly. My approach to ministry was lowly. And it was different than your values. And I get it. But but I didn't want to mute the cross. And so he says in verse 4, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. What does he mean by Spirit and power? 
Well, it would be easy to assume miracles. But as Gordon Fee points out, that would actually kind of defeat his message if that's what he meant. He's arguing against rhetorical flourish and powerful displays. And miracles are the very kinds of things that would have potentially impressed the Corinthians. And so while he did miracles, we know that, he mentions that in 2 Corinthians, that's probably not his primary focus here when he says the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So what then does he have in mind? Well, in 2 Corinthians, Paul explains how his perseverance through suffering, through weakness, through hardship, actually became the very vehicle by which the power of God was displayed. This is, in fact, one of the main themes of 2 Corinthians. And he makes the point that the very conversion of the Corinthians is evidence of this power. Paul actually says the same sort of thing with the same combination of ideas in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4 and 5 says, Knowing, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So the Spirit and power, both here and there in 1 Thessalonians, is probably referring to the power of the gospel embodied in Paul's life and teaching by the work of the Spirit through which he dealt with difficulty and hardship that ultimately brought the Corinthians to faith in Jesus. That's probably what he means when he says that my message and my preaching came with the demonstration of the Spirit and the power, that in my lowliness, in my suffering, in my weakness, uh, through that, the Spirit and the power of God was manifest, and that's what brought you to faith in Christ. And what's the goal of that approach? Well, look at verse 5. He says, So that I approached my ministry this way. I preached the message of the cross this way so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of mankind, but on the power of God. Paul approached his ministry this way because he did not want to mute and nullify the message of the cross, as he said in chapter 1, verse 17. He wanted the focus to be on that, and he wanted the power to be from the cross. He wanted them to believe in the cross and and Christ crucified and raised from the dead, not in Paul's ability to present it in persuasive sorts of ways. And so the power of God embodied in a crucified Messiah, that's what Paul's ministry was all about. Now, before we leave this section, let me just offer a couple of reflections. Uh, the first is the power and, in the, and importance of the cross. That's the heart of this. This is all about the power and importance of the cross. And just as in their world, so too in our world, the cross is minimized. It's looked down on. Sometimes it's treated as a problem. We have to soften its message. And yet, now as then the power of God is manifest in the cross of Christ. And so we need to, like Paul, determine to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. And that second reflection really requires us to think through our methods of communicating Christ to the culture around us in light of what Paul teaches here. Do our approaches depend on the oppressive strategies of the culture around us? What are the appropriate ways to do that? What are the inappropriate ways to do that? What are some ways that might mute or nullify the message of the cross? Do we seek to appeal to culture with the wisdom of mankind, the cleverness and the impressiveness and the beauty of mankind in our effort to persuade people? Or do we simply present the message of Christ and the message of the cross? I think we need to meditate on this section and really begin to think through in our ministries and in our churches and in our personal evangelism, what do we really focus on? 
And how do we communicate that? And are we unintentionally uh, absorbing and utilizing the strategies and the impressive things of culture? And by doing so, are we uh, bringing to nothing the message of the cross? All right, thanks for tuning in to this session on the Listener's Commentary on 1 Corinthians. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry made possible by the generosity of folks just like you. And when I receive emails from people all around the world saying how this is impacting them and their ministry and helping them come to understand God and learn and live the Bible and follow Jesus, I am incredibly grateful to those of you who make this ministry possible. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so. There's a link down in the notes below, or you can swing to listenerscommentary.com, click the Give button, or sign up for the Study Hub. Both are great ways to support this ministry. So thanks a ton for your support.